This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Heretic Happy Hour, whose tagline is Burning Questions, Not People. Join hosts Shonda Jaw, December Rose, Dr. Reverend Katie Valentine, Keith Giles, and myself, Matthew J. DiStefano, for a happy hour filled with quality conversation, fine fellowship, and perhaps even a laugh or two. Unapologetically irreverent and crass, yet sometimes profound, we make sure to pull no punches and leave no stones unturned as we discuss the Christian faith. But listener, beware. There will assuredly be some serious sacred cow tipping. If that sounds like your cup of tea, or bourbon if that's your thing, head on over to heretichappyhour.com to stay up to date with us, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Welcome to the Wild Olive Podcast, game-changing conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible. In today's episode of Wild Olive, we're revisiting Anne Sexton's poem, Jesus Walking, digging deeper into the portrayal of Jesus in that poem, and in Chapter 9 of Jennifer's book, Permission Granted. That chapter is entitled, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? I'm your host, Jean Patrol. And I'm your other host, Jennifer Bird. Hey, Jean. Hi, Jennifer. Can we start with you saying a bit about why you wrote that chapter, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? What were you hearing from readers? What were you hearing in the classroom that made you want to write that chapter? Absolutely. I think this is a great conversation for us to have. And really, the the main nugget here, and then I'll expand upon it, is that a lot of people misunderstand what the Gospels in the first century were up to. <laughs> a lot of people, as I am certain you have experienced as well, tend to read the Gospels as all saying the same thing. They're all just a slightly different version of the same events. And I I hear a lot people make a comparison to four witnesses to, say, a car accident or something. And sure, four different people are going to pick up on different elements of that event and tell that accordingly. But that analogy I don't think is accurate, but I understand why people use that analogy. And so that's why this chapter is important. The four Gospels make up a significant component of the Newer Testament. And of course, people turn to the Gospels to try to understand who Jesus was, what he was up to. So it's really important information. It's also hard for people to hear that really the four Gospel writers were up to slightly different things. In other words, I don't think that we should look at them as all trying to give an eyewitness account to the same events. They're actually sometimes depicting the same event, but with a different ending sure. that, 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 it, that changes the meaning of the story. They're leaving out certain stories and including ones that others don't have so that we have essentially four different essences or four different depictions of Jesus in the Gospels. And that took me some time to wrap my head around. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine with your background, 
Right. I wonder if you could share a bit with listeners what you share in that chapter about how ancient biography is different than contemporary biography, that reader expectations of a contemporary biography may not be appropriate to apply to an ancient biography. Can you say a little bit about that? Absolutely. And I like what you covered in the question. (laughs) The question sets us up nicely because most people do think of these Gospels as a biography in the same way that biographies play out today. And while there are similarities, there are some important differences. And so the highlights of that, of those differences, I think are important. And primarily, we tend to read ancient writings expecting the same level of accuracy that we have today. And I think, again, each of these pieces was really difficult for me to wrap my head around because I thought of the Bible as inspired by God, direct from God, and therefore trustworthy in every word. Ancient authors will tell us that they make things up at times, right? They didn't have court stenographers running around taking notes on you know, what happened on the battlefield here or what this particular philosopher was saying there, but that sometimes the stories are being told retrospectively, and sometimes you're kind of filling in the details in the ways that might make the most sense. Or in the case of biographies, the author was trying to say something about the person, and they were either trying to convince you to vote for them or to trust that this movement is okay, or to not like them. And in this case, the authors are trying to present an image of Jesus. It's possible that some of the things attributed to Jesus are not historical. But what matters is that they are attributed to him. And that means that it's a part of the meaning about Jesus that the author's trying to convey. Did that come across right? It did. Yes. (laughs) Yes. That makes sense to me. One way that I talk about this with my students and and others, my students, my friends, is to recognize the fact that what a 21st century person means by truth Mm. and what a first century person means by truth, they're different things. I'm not saying that there's no such thing as truth. I'm certainly not saying that. I'm just saying that in our epistemological framework in the 21st century, the way we know We think of truth in a very different way than a person would think about truth in a mythopoetic paradigm for knowing. And I feel like it's very helpful to recognize that. Yes. I think what you're highlighting is something that you and I have talked about before, right? This idea of truth and what is true about Jesus. That is an open question, to be honest. And what people think about Jesus comes from the Gospels for the most part, and those stories are trying to convey a meaning about him, whether or not he actually said or did all of those things. Those messages are truths about who he was that each author is trying to convey. And that does. It feels like a slippery slope or some sort of scary conversation. It just shifts the way you think about what these scriptures are. And it took me some time to accommodate that in my thinking. Yes. And I have to say that I find it very exciting. I find the multiplicity very exciting. So for some of us, it feels scary. And for some of us, it feels exciting. So I just wanted to acknowledge that. So I'd like to ask you to read the poem. 
I read the poem last time. And listeners, I just want to say that Jennifer and I thought we'd really like to talk about this poem again because I've had some new insights into the poem. The way poetry works for me is that I read a poem for the first time and experience usually some version of, huh, what's that? What's happening there? And then as I read and reread, more meaning unfolds itself. And as I move through my life, thinking about that particular poem, it's as if the poem becomes a lens through which I view my own experience And that lets me understand more about the poem. So we thought that it would be worth revisiting. And also this question of how Jesus is portrayed and how a Jesus experience is portrayed is so important. We thought, let's linger a moment on this. So Jennifer, would you read the poem? I will. And you know what? I actually think we're at the point where maybe we'll go into our first break And when we come back from the break, let's do that. Let's start with reading the poem. Okay. Hey, this is Matt Byrne, editor and producer for Wild Olive, with some questions for you about today's topic. First, the idea of truth in recounting past events. For you, does truth always have to be absolute, or is there room for interpretation from the biographer? So long as the general idea is the same, Is an interpreted account essentially the truth for you, or is it untrue? There's no one answer. Think about it while you listen to the rest of this episode. As a matter of fact, let's get back to the show now. Jesus Walking When Jesus walked in the wilderness, he carried a man on his back. At least it had the form of a man. A fisherman, perhaps, with a wet nose. A baker, perhaps, with flour in his eyes. The man was dead, it seems, and yet he was unkillable. Jesus carried many men, yet there was only one man, if indeed it was a man. There in the wilderness, all the leaves reached out with their hands, but Jesus went on by. The bees beckoned him to their honey, but Jesus went on by. The boar cut out its heart and offered it, but Jesus went on by with his heavy burden. The devil approached and slapped him on the jaw, and Jesus walked on. The devil made the earth move like an elevator, and Jesus walked on. The devil built a city of whores each in little angel beds, and Jesus walked on with his burden. For forty days, for forty nights, Jesus put one foot in front of the other, and the man he carried, if it was a man, became heavier and heavier. He was carrying all the trees of the world, which are one tree. He was carrying forty moons, which are one moon. He was carrying all the boots of all the men in the world, which are one boot. He was carrying our blood, one blood. To pray, Jesus knew, is to be a man carrying a man. Thank you for that. Yes. So that poem settled well for me 
I've been reading it now and again over the years. And when we read it together and spoke about it together on the last episode, it really settled into me. And in my daily life, in my experience, I started to notice when people were carrying each other. Parents carry heavy burdens for their children sometimes. Mm -hmm. Children carry burdens for their parents as their parents age. And my parents are in their 80s, and I'm not saying I'm carrying any burdens for them, but I would. Spouses carry burdens for spouses. We we do things for one another. And as I lived with this poem in my consciousness, I started noticing all the ways that people carry other people. And those last two lines, to pray, Jesus knew, is to be a man carrying a man, came alive with new resonance for me, because I could feel that praying energy in a lot of actions of ordinary life. Uh, my, I have a brother who uh, serves as a hospice volunteer, so he accompanies people toward death. And that's a kind of a carrying. So I just started noticing more and more instances of people carrying one another and thinking about it as a form of prayer. I'm curious to know if after our conversation, the poem directed your thinking or your attention in particular ways. Did you notice anything new about the poem as you lived with it and the poem settled in you? I don't think it did in the way that it did for you. I think what I because I'm a text person, what I'm doing actually right now is I'm listening to you reflect on it. And I'm also revisiting the poem and looking at certain elements of it and even just reflecting on the fact that the poem is titled Jesus Walking, not Jesus Dying, not Jesus Crucified, Jesus Resurrected, but Jesus Walking. And I'm a fan of language. <laughs> I like the poet's intentional choices throughout this poem. And I do, I, I, you know, I am drawn to reflect on these elements of the poem that I think she's either playing with or teasing out a bit to refer to 40 of anything, right? 40 days, 40 nights, 40 moons, she talks about carrying 40 moons, the reference to the trees of the world and how it, the conversation about Jesus being crucified on a tree, to me, then she's kind of playing with that idea that it's not, in a sense, the tree that that he was executed on it is one that has applied for a lot of people, right? All of the trees. So that's where I go with this in reflecting on it more than just the first time that we talked about it last week. Really interesting. Yeah, thank you for that. You reminded me there's a medieval poem. It's called The Dream of the Rude, R-O-O-D. Rude referring to the cross mm -hmm. that Jesus is executed on. And the poem is spoken from the point of view of the cross. 
the point of view of the rude. There's a whole category of medieval poem in which the poem is spoken from the perspective of an inanimate object. And it's fascinating. And you remind me of that as well. So let's jump back to talking about permission granted. One of the ways that we've talked about Jesus walking and the way that we talk about poetry generally is that when poems make reference to the Bible, when poems use Jesus as a character, when poems portray any biblical figure, it's a form of interpretation. So the poem gives us an opportunity to start experiencing the gospel stories or whatever character or whatever image on our own, freed from control of interpretation by religious institutions. Religious institutions tend to control interpretation, and poets tend to release control and invite us and encourage us to reconsider the character or the story on our own. So considering that there are multiple interpretations of who Jesus is, multiple ways of portraying Jesus, as we've spoken about already. I wonder if we could talk a bit about some specific aspects of portrayal from the Gospels that you talk about in your chapter. Um, one thing I really love in this chapter is the chart. Ah. You have a chart that talks about the difference between Son of God, Son of Man, and explains to people that these phrases were not used only in conjunction with Jesus. Can you share a little bit with listeners about that? Absolutely. I think of this element of the labels Son of God and Son of Man as, in a sense, separate from, and they kind of undergird the various depictions of Jesus in the four Gospels. But I know that this is one of those other pieces of Oh my gosh, I just didn't know. You know, when I learned about, for instance, the label Son of God, I, coming from my background in a church, I thought that everything ascribed to Jesus was unique to him. And I didn't know that the label, for instance, Son of God, is not for pointing out divinity. It's not saying, it's not used to label a, a God, it's used to label a human who is being ascribed godlike characteristics or godlikeness if you will in the ancient world so the label son of man which sounds like you're talking about a human <laughs> is actually a label for a divine being who takes on human form and comes to the earth and it sounds to most people you know almost every time like it's those sound like they're switched you know the label for a god should be son of god well, yes, but no. If you think about it from the human perspective, I think it makes a little bit more sense to say this is a human who is behaving in extraordinary ways. He must be the son of a god, that kind of a thing. And and that is, we, we have evidence of that, that that's what people were thinking at the time um, as they used these labels to talk about, as you said, Jean, not just Jesus, but lots of men were claimed to be sons of God or gods themselves, so humans who were thought of as deified. And these are all conversations that I just, I really had a hard time wrapping my head around the first time I learned about them in graduate school or seminary. And it felt um, heretical to me 
to say that someone else was called a son of God and that I didn't need to worship that other being, you know, all kinds of things going on here. Um, so, you know, the chart in the book is meant to help people see what language in the first century was trying to do that might be different from the way you hear it or just have casually thought about it. Um, if you've heard about it and just described it all to Jesus. Um, but we do have, you know, evidence of other men in the ancient Near East who were called sons of God or son of God um, from various parts and long predating Jesus. So that idea of something that is being used to talk about Jesus as being special for him is an idea that many people growing up in the church have. And it's understandable, but it isn't fully, it isn't well informed. Yeah, yeah, I think it's an important thing to have a better understanding of. I think um, I'd love it if we could spend a little bit more time, maybe after this next break, talking a little bit more about um, the way you think about poetry, in particular, maybe this poem, engaging the Gospels or engaging depictions of Jesus. How would that be? Sure, that sounds good. Jean, why don't you get us started on this? I'm curious what you do when you are reading a poem for the first time. All I do when I read a poem for the first time is pay attention to what I notice. Nobody even has to try in order for something in a poem to just pop a little bit. You just notice it more then you notice other lines, maybe particular images popped. The 40 moons and the tree popped for you. One thing that I notice about Jesus walking, and I didn't say this during our last conversation, but I think that it's one of the most interesting things about the poem. The poem establishes a rhythm of walking. The poem is enacting walking through repetition. I can feel this steady beat beat, beat, beat in the poem. And the poem walks <laughs> as well mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. looking at Jesus walking. So mm -hmm. when I first start to work with a poem, I just pay attention to what I notice. Oh, that's interesting. He carried a man on his back. And then there's this immediate ambiguity. And then I notice Images that seem sharp, a fisherman with a wet nose, a baker with flour in his eyes. There's something about flour in his eyes. So all I do is pay attention to what I notice and I wonder about it. I think the process of interpretation is a kind of wondering, a purposeful wondering about something. And that's all I do. And then over time, ideas just begin to occur to me or questions occur to me, like, huh, why is this ambiguous? Whether it's all the boots or one boot, our blood, one blood, why is there that ambiguity? And I just keep the wondering process going. And that's how I work with a poem. I think many people growing up in a church context are also 
when they're maybe given a chance to do a Bible study as compared to just listening to scripture read for a sermon or homily. I think have a chance to do that kind of a thing too, you know, with um, with scripture. And it's interesting to me to, I don't want to take too much of a digression here, but you know, yeah, I think people do do that. People cling to parts of a passage, parts of a story and want to talk about that. Why is, what does this mean? Why, you know, this part stuck out to me. This is interesting. And, and it, what is, what do we do with that? So I think that can be a helpful way to bridge what we're trying to talk about here in terms of the same observational skills that you use in reflecting on this sacred scripture. You can use to think about other kinds of literature that might be sacred to other people, but maybe, maybe you don't think of on the same level, but but it's a similar kind of thing going on, right? The meaning making going on um, with the playfulness of the words or the intentional choices of certain ideas and phrases. It is very similar. One of the things that I really like to do when I'm teaching Bible as literature is to ask students to compare birth narratives. <laughs> we quickly realize there is no birth narrative in Gospel of Mark and there's not really a narrative in the beginning of Gospel of John. It's a philosophical right. meditation. Exactly. And so that really leaves Gospel of Matthew and Gospel of Luke. And if you ever have watched A Charlie Brown Christmas, you know that Christmas pageants tend to fuse the two. There are shepherds, there are um, sorcerer type people, wise men, often called wise men. There are angels speaking to shepherds, angels speaking to... It's, it's all fused. And one of the things that I first noticed when I started comparing birth narratives, and this is just a detail that would stand out to me because of my interests, that in Gospel of Matthew, an angel speaks to Joseph in a dream. And in Gospel of Luke, an angel speaks directly to Mary. And so that's interesting. And my processing of those texts just begins with, oh, huh, look at that. In one narrative, an angel speaks to Joseph, and in another narrative, an angel speaks to Mary. Interesting. So I do do the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I love to that you just chose to bring up the birth narratives because, to me, that example that you just used helps to highlight my the point that newer testament scholars are trying to make about the difference in the four gospels the fact that mark doesn't have one <laughs> just tells us certain things about where mark was coming from or even information that mark did or didn't have and i'm referring to mark as you know whoever that person is but yeah luke's birth narrative tells us things about the kind of message Luke's gospel is trying to give us about Jesus that is different from the message we're the Matthew's gospel the Matthew's writer is trying to give us about Jesus they are they suggest different things to us about who Jesus was and about who the people engaging with him are going to expect him to be or in encounter him to be and John's gospel is doing something utterly different from the first three and is the only one from which we get God, Jesus as fully divine. And no wonder we have this cosmic 
I think I already told you this before, but I like to play um, Sprock Zarathustra in the background and read the opening lines of John's Gospel because it overlaps in place so nicely. This like cosmic unfolding and creating of the whole universe, you know, and that's what's being claimed about Jesus. He was there according to this depiction, which is, which again, which ultimately, I think I want to be clear. I think we respect these gospels more if we can let them be separate and let each one speak to us on its own instead of feeling like we need to harmonize them, which a lot of people have tried to do over the centuries. And I understand that impulse. But we're actually dishonoring the scripture, I think, when we do that, instead of letting John tell us something that is different. Just let that be what it is. So, yeah, I like I, that. Yeah. I just as we're closing, I would like to call our attention to what Anne Sexton, as the poet, is paying attention to when she reads gospel stories, because the poem is calling attention to particular parts of the Jesus stories. The poem is interested in, huh, wilderness. What's that? Temptation. What is that? Uh, who is this character? And how can I understand this character? And I think that's a wonderful service that the poem does to the Jesus stories is to recall our attention to specific parts of the story to just deepen our wondering. I think wondering is such a productive place to be, whether you're reading a poem or reading gospel narratives. And Sexton's poem reminds us to do that. Yes. And I also want to reiterate um, from last time that what I what I really enjoy about this poem is how she encourages me to think of Jesus as a man, as a human, and to attend to those details, similar to what you just said, but I think for me, maybe from a different angle. But yep, he's a human. He was a guy who was, you know, enduring these things or doing, choosing to do these things. But let's focus on the human part of this. And I, I love what that, what her poem helps me, the way her poem helps me do that. Mm. Well, thank you, Jennifer. Yes. Thank you, Jean. I'm, I'm glad we had a chance to revisit this. Me too. I'll see you next time. Okay. Next time. Thanks for listening to episode 12 of Wild Olive. If you like game-changing conversations about literature, culture, and the Bible, please hit subscribe and tell some friends all about Wild Olive. You can find episode notes at wildolivebibleandculture.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search Wild Olive. Our music is composed by Nick Stubblefield. You can ask Jennifer or Jean a question by emailing connect at wildolivebibleandculture.org. We'll catch you next time for more wild conversations. We'll see you then.